Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 156, Marching to the Long March. Now that the main body of this miniseries concerning the goings-on in nationalist China has been wrapped up, it is time to loop back around to what was then a smaller story. I'm talking about the Communist Party of China, the CPC, and the meager holdings that they wound up having across the nation's south in the aftermath of the 1927 purge against them which had been followed by disastrous uprisings that had driven them into the hills. Mao, who had only barely managed to hold together a few thousand men after the autumn of 1927, set the example by establishing the Jingongshan base camp, or as I'll also be referring to it and others like it, as Soviets. They're the same thing, and Soviet in this case is just a reference to a communal form of government found in the areas the CPC controlled, not to the Soviet Union, the nation. They were bases where the fledgling Chinese Red Army could gather in force, and from where the CPC actually exercised authority over communities. The local bourgeois were all deposed, and the peasants elevated to control the land which they worked. It was a system not without controversy within the CPC, as following traditional Marxism, it was the urban proletariat that should be the leading way towards revolution which was an idea embraced by most of the CPC leaders who, like their counterparts in the KMT, themselves came from the cities and didn't have much experience with the rural peasantry. Mao, though, had made the countryside kind of his specialty and put his ideas of a rural revolution into practice. This did not make his colleagues very happy, as they continually urged him to seize a major urban center, really, any major urban center, to really get things going, but they were mostly living in the Shanghai underground and far away from Mao in southern Jiangxi province. On account of the KMT's hostility, there were multiple dispersed areas of influence within the larger communist movement in China, as there were the armed base camps out in the field, the party's leadership in Shanghai, the Comintern, which was effectively the mechanism that Moscow used to influence the CPC, and finally, what was left of the party apparatus out in the provinces. Of all the groups, it was probably the provincial party officials who had the least pull by the start of 1929. Their numbers had never been great during the first high tide of the KMT-CPC alliance, and their staffs were reduced still more after April 1927. If you remember from back in episode 77, for example, there were attempts by provincial party officials to assert their authority over Mao, which he went along with at the direction of the Shanghai leadership, but such arrangements didn't last long. The officials were usually not suited to national leadership spots, and their ability to command out in the field was nil. So, for long stretches, leadership was left to the base camp leaders and the Shanghai leadership, who could only fitfully communicate with one another. Seriously, it could take months for word to reach each other. Same with communications from the Comintern, except the delay was even worse. I'll resume our story with Mao and his military partner, Zhu Di, in January 1929, right about where I left them last season. Uh, just as a note, today I'll be covering the timeline of events for the CPC in China South, with a heavy focus on the Jiangxi Soviet, as that would be the springboard for what would become the Long March across China. The march itself will be covered in the next two episodes to wrap up this miniseries. They had been forced to finally give up their Jingongshan base camp at the end of 1928, and had only been saved by the appearance of 800 NRA defectors 
who were then promptly sacrificed to cover the Red Army's retreat from southwestern Jiangxi to the southeast, towards northern Guangdong province. The province of Guangdong is one that factions gravitated to on account of its wealth and geographic distance from the center of China proper. Unfortunately for Mao and Zhu, the Guangxi clique had moved to assert their influence over that province after the KMT had moved their main base to central China. Mao and Zhu would not have distracted authorities, letting them set up in a prize so valuable as Guangdong. The communist hopes of setting up a new Soviet in the northern reaches of that province were dashed, and soon they were on the run again. They were forced to disperse into guerrilla bands on the borderland regions where Zhangji, Fujian, and Guangdong provinces all met, with no central base camp able to be set up. Zhao Enlai, one of the leading figures in the CPC, and a guy for whose entire life had a, well, uh, let's just say he had a delicate relationship with Mao, ordered the army to disperse and for Mao and Zhu to return to Shanghai, seeing the fight in the region as over and also a distraction from the real work of organizing the urban proletariat. By the time the message reached Mao, however, his army, now properly reorganized into a guerrilla force, had ambushed and destroyed a pursuing brigade of KMT warlord troops. Hundreds of rifles and several machine guns were taken, and the Reds set about denying the KMT use of the borderlands between southern Jiangxi and Fujian. By March 1929, many of the county-level cities in the region had fallen to the Reds. Mao bluntly refused Zhao's order once received and reasonably laid out that they weren't done just yet. It was early 1929 and the South was in chaos, with petty warlords all over the region defying central KMT authority. Keep in mind, the NRA's focus on this time was the Guangxi clique, and not long after that, they would have to start looking to the northern warlords in the run-up to the Central Plains War. The communists were at this stage a nuisance at best. The opening to get something going again was there, and this would be the humble start of a Soviet that would encompass millions of people and was almost a province in its own right. By the time the Shanghai leadership got Mao's refusal of their order, they had already been made aware of the victories on the ground, so they canceled it and blamed the whole thing on Nikolai Bukharin over in the Comintern. Mao's opponents weren't done yet, though, and Mao was overly focused on tensions between himself and Zhu Di at the time. The pair had worked well together, but there was always the problem of Mao wanting to control both the political work of their shared First Front Army area, as their formation was known, as well as the military side of it, which Zhu resented. The situation changed in the spring when Zhao sent in a representative that made a third committee over both of them, giving Zhu the authority he wanted and effectively cordoned off Mao. Now, Mao was able to block this by threatening to resign his positions a week later, and the arrangement was scrapped by the on-the-ground party officials. However, there was called to order a new Congress of the party officials attached to the First Army in order to hash out organization and strategy once and for all. It turned out that Mao's centralizing and uh, controlling nature had rubbed others the wrong way, and the lesser party members turned on him. This turn was quite the blow to Mao, and he would withdraw from party business for the next five months, claiming illness. You could see a guy kind of bowing out of a bad situation with the uh, I'm sick excuse as kind of lame, but uh, there was a very real bout of malaria, so you know there was actually something to it there. A funny thing happened, though. Uh, when word of the local Congress got back to Shanghai, they actually took Mao's side. They told the First Army officials that centralizing was the intent, and the political side of the army should, in fact, be empowered. 
This turnaround vis-a-vis -vis Mao uh, probably came from the fact that the intent was to clip Mao's wings in this scenario. It wasn't to empower the army, so the fact the army came away stronger was itself now a problem. Zhao regretted sending his envoy as the man had appeared to merely stir up trouble, an issue that resolved itself when the guy was helpfully killed in combat that summer. Mao was asked back to again take control of the situation. In September, word got back to the First Army, and Zhu called for another local congress to revise their decisions. Mao, though, played the drama queen and pled illness once again, arranging to be carried before Zhu in a stretcher. In October, another missive from Shanghai arrived asking Mao and Zhu to cooperate like good comrades and to just get on with the business of the guerrilla war. Mao again refused. In the meantime, Zhu launched another offensive into Guangdong, which failed badly. On November 18th, he tried to get Mao to come back, and again, Mao refused. Finally, on the 25th of November, the entire committee for the army asked him to return to his leadership position. Mao, who had been jerked around like this since basically 1927, had finally forced his comrades to give him a solid mandate to lead, and he came back. He, of course, immediately took the opportunity to call a conference where he raked his critics across the coals for going against his thinking, but all in all, it was pretty light by Mao's standards. Meanwhile, events elsewhere in China were proving impactful. In the fall of 1929, the Soviet Union and Zhang Zhuleng engaged in their border war that I covered a few weeks ago. Part of the USSR's plans was to call for guerrilla warfare all across China in the style that Mao and He Long to the West were doing. Uh, he Long is another communist military leader who had managed to save part of his army back in the 1927 uprisings. He had managed to set up his own base camp in northwestern Hunan province and was basically acting in a similar fashion to Mao, just on a smaller scale. He'll have an even longer march of his own, but under fairly different circumstances to Mao. The Comintern's call to action was taken as an inspiration by Li Lisan back in Shanghai. Li wasn't the on-paper leader of the CPC, but he was effectively the prime decision-maker of it. In early 1930, he looked at the Great Depression and the seemingly endless civil wars in China and thought, hey, this might actually be the time for the real deal revolution. He devised what would become known as the Li Lisan Line, which you might call the Triple L, but we're not going to. He asserted that the time for a national uprising was fast approaching and advocated for a widespread revolutionary action concentrated on taking the big provincial cities and mobilizing their urban proletariats. Military operations outside the cities were to focus on disrupting transportation and supply lines. Guerrilla warfare was to be abandoned. This plan, detailed in a June 11, 1930 resolution of the CPC's Politburo, did not correspond to the Comintern's original instructions of a half-year previously. The Comintern's leadership had urged guerrilla warfare to start in order to cobble together a territorial base, followed by expanding at the provincial level, then forcing a civil war against the Nanjing government. Li, though, rejected this, arguing that a gradual effort was doomed to failure. Rapid strikes had to be made to seize the provincial nerve centers all at once. How Li presumed to do that with a still small Red Army... I have no idea, and honestly, neither did anybody else. The main focus was with the base camp area to the north under Zhang Guotao, who which was centered on the Hubei Anhui provincial border, very close to Wuhan, which would be the big prize. As you might imagine, Mao was reluctant to follow these orders, but he tried to the best of his ability. 
The two planned targets for his part of the offensive were Changsha and Nancheng, with a commander named Peng Duhai and Zhu respectively attacking them. The operation was a failure from almost the start, having launched in late July 1930. Peng managed to take Changsha on July 27th, but was forced out by the NRA nine days later, while Zhu couldn't touch Nancheng. The attempt on Wuhan met similar results. Zhu and Peng would regroup and launch a unified attack on just Changsha in September, but storming a well-defended city proved hopeless, and they had to break off the attack on the 13th. The timing was bad, as this was during the Central Plains War, right when the NRA and its warlord allies were in high alert all across the south. Mao managed to salvage part of the situation by taking the smaller city of Jian in central Zhangji without a fight on October 4th. It led to hyperbolic proclamations of a revolution that was definitely coming soon, but was, in reality, a modest victory that didn't lead to anything big. For Li Lasan, the new offensives were the beginning of his end. Going against the Comintern's intent was bad enough. By the fall, he was frantically talking about provoking a war between the USSR and Japan and to bring the Soviet Red Army into the country, as well as to publicly call out Moscow's leadership. When this got back to Stalin, well, he didn't take it too well. Stalin deployed a group that would be called the 28 Bolsheviks, Chinese communists who had traveled to the USSR to be specially trained in every aspect of Marxist thought. They were young men who, once returned to China, immediately started asserting themselves as new leaders, much to Li's chagrin at the impudent youths. He didn't have to be chagrined for long as Stalin summoned him to Moscow. Li made a mistake in accepting the summons, and the Soviets took him prisoner for the next 15 years, only sending him back in 1946. He didn't get the gulag treatment, but it would be a life of isolation and recrimination from Soviet authorities. His replacement was the most prominent of the 28 Bolsheviks, Wang Ming, who was only 26 years old. He and the others would prove to be trouble for Mao. The communist attacks also had the more long-lasting effect of alerting Chiang Kai-shek that they were a growing problem, and starting in the fall of 1930, the encirclement campaign started. The first blows would be against the Soviets to the east of Wuhan and Mao's down in the southeast. Each would be assailed by 100,000 provincial troops flying the KMT banner, and both would be disasters for the attackers. In the case of the Jiangxi Soviet under Mao, he was able to assemble 40,000 fighters despite the defeats in the summer. And these were battle-hardened, motivated troops fighting defensive battles in the backcountry and not once storming urban areas. And Mao had a plan to negate the number disparity. Instead of meeting the NRA troops head-on in open battle, they'd give up ground and allow them to advance. The nationalist troops would become less cohesive as they took ground, which would allow them to be ambushed and destroyed in individual groups. The strategy went in the face of Li Lasan's orders, but those really had stopped counting for much. Starting on November 5th, the nationalist forces under Liu Diping set out from northern Jiangxi. The Red Army gave ground before them, leaving behind troops only to operate in the NRA's rear areas. Over almost two months, Liu's troops reclaimed most of Jiangxi. Only on December 29th did the Red Army counterattack get underway. An army division under Zhang Huizan had advanced too far and separated itself from the main army, and unbeknownst to the nationalists, were surrounded by Red Army troops over the course of the night. When they woke up in the morning, there was no way out, and in five hours, the division was destroyed. 9,000 men were taken prisoner, with 5,000 rifles and 30 machine guns falling into communist hands. 
a nearby division that had also advanced too deep learned of the battle and tried to hightail it out of the area, but wound up losing 3,000 of their own men in the pursuit, along with most of their heavy equipment. All the gear left behind by the Nationalists was a boon to the Red Army, as they got a treasure trove of not just rifles and machine guns, but they also finally got radios. Something to know about what was happening the months leading up to and during that first campaign were the real-deal first purges implemented by Mao. Starting in May 1930, there began to be suspected a conspiracy of KMT infiltration into the Jiangxi CPC. If this seems unlikely at first glance, keep in mind that many members of both the CPC and KMT were not committed ideologists, and the screening process to the new members for the CPC was undeveloped at best, and many communists were drawn from the same social stratas that produced Kuomintang members. There might have been some truth to the idea, but given the pressures of the day, the response was all out of proportion to the uh, potential problem. By October 1930, a thousand CPC members had been executed, and after the end of the summer uprisings and the start of the encirclement campaigns, it got worse. As the Red Army began its retreat south to draw the NRA in, the party began purging any suspect elements in the army or party. Over just a month, thousands were shot in a frenzy of recrimination and paranoia. It was so bad that a few hundred Red Army troops mutinied during the campaign and fled. The effect of the purges was to bind the army closer to Mao and leave behind only the most committed fighters, which was good for them, but the methods used to do so might have less of anything be desired. The battalion that mutinied would later be invited back by Mao in June 1931 between the second and third encirclement campaigns, but all 200 of them that accepted the invitation would be executed. Despite those circumstances, the first encirclement campaign was a major victory for the communists. They didn't have long to celebrate, as Chiang launched a second encirclement campaign on April 1st, 1931. Under the command of central NRA leadership and not warlord generals, 200,000 men were deployed, and the Nationalists moved much more slowly than before. The Nationalists didn't want to get caught out in the open as they had in the last campaign. The Communists wanted to again do the false retreat trick, but when it dawned on the Red Commanders how bad the numerical disparity was, they questioned if it would work or not. It was proposed that they disperse and try again building a Soviet somewhere else. Then on April 17th, word came in from Shanghai that the Zhangji Soviet was to be the centerpiece of the struggle against the KMT. The decision was made for them. They would continue the fight. It was decided, though, that the best course of action was to collapse the weak points of the NRA's encirclement. The western side of the Soviet was cordoned off by Fujian provincial troops, which were badly organized and indifferent to their operation's success. The Red Army concentrated their strength against them in mid-May and overwhelmed their isolated positions in the hills and mountains, costing the Nationalists 30,000 men in losses, putting the rest to flight, and delivering 20,000 rifles to the Red Army by the end of the month. Chang declared a break, but this time only for a month to allow his numbers to rise to 300,000. On July 1st, he launched his third attempt. Mao and Zhu did not expect Chang to regroup so fast, and this time, they felt they were really in trouble. The numbers were too great to try and concentrate on a single sector, and Chang kept to a slow, orderly advance that didn't expose any one part of his army. Over two months, the base camp was ground down to a sliver of its former holdings in the south. The Red Army tried a desperate night encirclement at the start of August, but found itself counter-encircled by an army ten times their size. 
a desperate breakout by the last 20,000 Red Army troopers, succeeded by a hair's breadth, and they made their way west towards Hunan province, although their chances of making it were grim and there was no long-term plan. The CPC was only saved when the Japanese invaded Manchuria. Bigger fish suddenly materialized, and Chang had to call off the campaign just as he was about to destroy Mao and Zhu's army. While the communists were thereafter able to rebuild their Soviet, and as time went on, make it bigger than before, they knew full well that a reckoning was still coming. And while the Jiangxi Soviet got on with rebuilding, things were changing in the party. Dai Li and his special services department made a breakthrough in 1931 and began successfully cracking down on the CPC in Shanghai and other major cities. Hundreds were rounded up in the arrests, and the weak party apparatus outside the base camps was largely ruined. Party leaders were now forced to leave the cities and go out into the base camps, both to assert closer party control as well as for their own safety. This, uh, this was met with a mixed reaction by the people actually running the base camps. Mao at least got assigned Zhao Enlai in April 1931. Uh, the other two major Soviets to the west and the north got stuck with some of the 28 Bolshevik youngins. His Soviet was grandly renamed the Central Soviet Base Area and was intended to be where the Central Party leadership would eventually relocate. The upgrade didn't actually play to Mao's advantage. By this time, the 28 Bolsheviks had identified him as a leading figure of the Old Guard and had their sights set on him, and in November 1931, Wang Ming informed Mao that he would be put in charge of the new Soviet government in Jiangxi. This was great, except it meant he was left administering an oversized base camp while all the military and party matters were left in other hands. Little note about communist states. Always go for party control first and foremost. That's where the power is. Bureaucracy is always beholden to it, and so is the military for that matter. That's the formula. Zhao was given Mao's old spot of Central Bureau Secretary in the Politburo, which meant he managed party business in the base camps. And party business was everything. The thin silver lining to Zhao getting his old spot was that while Zhao and Mao did not always see eye to eye, Zhao also really didn't get along much with the 28 Bolsheviks, so there was that. Unfortunately for both of them, by the latter part of 1931, the party's general secretary leadership spot had been taken by one of the 28 Bolsheviks, Bo Gu. Bo, for the moment, was still operating in Shanghai and quickly got into it with the base camp commanders over how to move forward after the Manchurian invasion. Anti-Japanese sentiment was riding high, and he felt that if they could make another offensive and take a major city, it would inspire people into believing that the CPC would be the ones to really lead resistance against the foreign invasion. Countless meetings led to nothing but bickering between the young leaders and the commanders on the ground, leading Mao to take a leave of absence in January 1932. In his absence, Bo ordered Zhao to take charge and direct the Red Army to attack Ganzhou in southern Jiangxi. Unfortunately, that city is surrounded on three sides by water, presenting a natural fortress, and Mao had argued multiple times to specifically not attack that city. Of course, the attack failed, and the Red Army was made to look like chumps once again after attacking an urban area. In February 1932, Zhao called upon Mao and, in a large meeting, admitted they had been wrong. While Zhao couldn't make personnel shuffles personally, he was willing to follow Mao's guidance from then on when managing military and party affairs in the Soviet. This was a seemingly small moment, but represented a watershed between the two. 
Zhao was probably the most gifted CPC leader next to Mao, and the two had a long history of undermining each other. Or, at least, Zhao mostly undermining Mao. Now, though, they came to an understanding, one that would fitfully hold for the rest of their lives. Again, they weren't friends, but the working relationship was at least functional from then on out. Mao's first order of business as unofficial overall commander was to march the Red Army deep into southern Fujian province, claiming the major city of Zhangzhou almost on the ocean coast. What made this sudden attack more successful than previous efforts was that Mao correctly identified the weak links in the area, and the Fujian warlords were among the worst of the lot. This annoyed the hell out of Bo back in Shanghai. The entire reason Ganzhou was picked as a target was because the Red Army was supposed to be heading northwards, towards the big central cities. Zhangzhou was a big pickup, but it wasn't on the road to anywhere. To Mao, though, he was taking wins where he could get them, and they weren't to be found in the north. It did, though, alarm Chen Jitang over in Guangdong, and he sent an army to pressure the Red Army's southern flank in May 1932. Mao had to abandon the excursion in Fujian to meet this force, and it was only after a month of fighting that Chen withdrew back home, the old status quo from a few months ago having been restored. Another attempt to take ground in northeast Zhangxi in August met with initial success, but ended with another withdrawal back to the Soviet. These advances and then withdrawals did not go over well at all with the Central Party leadership. Not only had Mao ignored their orders, but he had apparently wasted a whole lot of time in half-baked offensives that didn't go anywhere. The reality was Mao was striking against opponents he could win against and otherwise conserving his strength, but the leadership were still drunk with the successes of the past three encirclement campaigns. If the army could win against odds like that, why couldn't they do it now? They had no idea what the real situation was is the correct answer. In mid-October, they forbid Mao from weighing in on military matters and reprimanded Zhao for letting him take charge. Mao remained the chairman of the Soviet, but held little effective influence. This was made worse when Bo and the other CPC leaders still in Shanghai finally left town and traveled to Zhangji. No longer would communication be through spotty radios and couriers. Now they were all together. This was the dark time for Mao, as he was isolated from the rest of the CPC leaders, and his closest supporters, Zhu and Zhao, were both occupied on the front lines. And the front lines had turned hot again, with Cheng having finally amassed a new army of 500,000 for his fourth attempt at breaking the Soviet starting in January 1933. He had just finished ejecting the base camp in the Hubei on Wee border during the middle of 1932, and that army had been forced to make a breakout and hightail it all the way to Sichuan province. There, under the leadership of Zhang Gutao, a new Soviet was cobbled together in northern Sichuan, while these main warlords of the region were too busy fighting amongst each other to do anything to deal with them. They would be there waiting for when Mao passed through the area. The fight in Zhangji, though, would prove to be more protracted. This time, the Red Army was so outnumbered that the NRA forces were lulled into a false sense of security, so when the communists struck into northeast Zhangji, right into the thick of the nationalist forces, Cheng's generals didn't know how to react. Instead of steadily compressing the communist forces, they found themselves hopelessly mixed up with the Red Army in the forested mountains of the province. They attempted to run the communists down, but only managed to disorganize their own forces, which allowed Zhu and Zhao to concentrate their guys, who were far more experienced at maneuvering in small units before linking back together into a surrounding force. Basically, it was a strategy of make the situation go into total chaos mode, and then once the enemy is disorganized, recoalesce and surround them. 
Both at the end of February and at the end of March, the NRA suffered crushing defeats that lost 30,000 men in casualties and 10,000 in prisoners. Once again, valuable equipment was picked up by the Reds. Against all odds, they had held once again, and the fourth encirclement campaign was called off. What should have been a time to regroup was instead squandered by Bo, who ordered again an offensive northward. The attacking communists fell into the familiar pattern of bogging down and lacking the firepower to take prepared NRA positions. In this manner, the Red Army was poorly rested when Chang came back for his fifth and final attempt. I already described the blockhouse strategy used in this fifth encirclement campaign a couple weeks ago, where, this time, Chang's now one million-man army would construct stone fortifications in an area, form a cordon that couldn't be broken by the weakly armed Red Army, and then advance slowly into a new area, whereupon new fortifications would be built and the process would start all over again. In this manner, the NRA would not be drawn into battles where they could be outmaneuvered, and its soldiers would be shielded from ambush or hit-and-run attacks. This last campaign would run an entire year, and 14,000 blockhouses were built. It was a nightmare to fight against for the Red Army, and there were no solutions. The German communist Otto Braun had arrived from the Comintern as a military advisor, but his approach of waiting for the NRA to emerge from the blockhouses to advance forward and then immediately attacking them was proven to be a failure. The NRA only emerged when they wanted to, when all their troops were ready. An open battle during their pre-planned advances was about as bad as attacking a blockhouse directly. That was when firepower was concentrated the most and troops were practically sitting on their own safe havens. For an entire year, the Red Army was bottled up in ways it had never been before. The only opening came when the 19th Root Army of the NRA mutinied, but even that was quickly contained by Chang. There was some back and forth among the communist ranks about joining with them and maybe opening up their eastern front, but this was dismissed on account of the 19th Army, at its heart, being a warlord group. They were doing the communists a solid by mutinying, but ideologically they'd never support any revolutionary action, and indeed, would likely be liabilities even in the short term. The rapidity with which the army was rounded up and dispersed did not speak to their capabilities in fighting the rest of the NRA. As early as April 1934, it was being discussed that a breakout to the west was necessary, following in Zhang Gutao's footsteps to Sichuan. By the end of the summer, an evacuation was being taken as a given. The only hope was that some outside event, similar maybe to the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, would occur and give them a lifeline to hang on to their home. That never materialized, and by the end of September, preparations were being made to get the hell out. We'll pick back up next week with the actual start of the Long March, and suffice to say, the initial plan was not to walk east to west across China proper, then turn 90 degrees and walk south to north. Uh, that all came later. We'll get into it, so... Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.